First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. Jacksonville just keeps growing, but are developers building too much in sensitive areas? Good morning. We're live from Studio 2 with you. I'm Melissa Ross, and this is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, why environmentalists are worried about the impact of new developments on wetlands in Duval County. Give us a call. We're talking about development and growth issues on the show today, and it's 549-2937 to join us. Later in the hour, it's Black History Month, and we'll tell you more about Jacksonville's rich Black heritage and how you can learn some fascinating stuff by taking a tour through the urban core with Explore Jack's Core. That and more ahead, but first this morning, the Jacksonville City Council has unanimously approved a development in rural Northwest Jacks, and it's promising to bring as many as 3,000 new housing units, commercial opportunities, and recreation. Now, this nearly 1,500-acre parcel between Acre, Plummer, and Old Kings Roads is surrounded by conservation areas and a mitigation bank. Local developer Corner Lot owns the lot, the parcel. Their agreement with the city requires them to preserve wetlands, but environmentalists say the area should be protected and not developed at all. It's an age-old story in Florida, the fight between development and those that want to preserve the state's natural beauty and environmentally sensitive areas. This is the latest, and we are so pleased to welcome reporters Hannah Holthouse and Alexandria Mansfield, who've been following this for the Florida Times Union, and good morning to you both. Good morning. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for being here. Well, have you seen all of the new apartment buildings going up all across the city? It's no surprise. We've seen a huge population influx in the two to three plus years of the pandemic. But with growth comes growing pains. So give us a call this morning on the show as we talk about this. 549-2937. Emails to First Coast Connect at WJCT.org. Tweets to at Melissa Injax and Facebook always open. Well, Alexandria, let's start with you. Tell us about this plot of land and the area it's in. So it's a little over 1,400 acres. Um, it's in the northwest region of Jacksonville, kind of by Conagree and Penn Farm, a little bit north of that, a little bit north and west of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very much almost on the edge of the city. And it's mostly wetlands and uplands right now. Mostly wetlands and uplands. In fact, the St. John's Water Management District called the entire parcel critical wetlands. Why is that an important designation? Yes. So that basically means that um, it's for this particular parcel, it's mostly important for flood mitigation. Um, Obviously, wetlands serve a lot of purposes in the ecosystem, including providing food, water, etc. But for this particular parcel, it's flood mitigation, which obviously is extremely important in Jacksonville as well. And uplands, too. Can you explain what those are? Yes. So that's um, basically just the area around the wetlands that is dry. um, And that uh, can frequently contain endangered species such as the gopher tortoise in Florida. Okay, so we want to try to protect those where we can. Yes. And is this a flood-prone area? Uh, so it's a little bit, it's a little bit iffy whether or not it's flood-prone. The report will say it's not flood-prone for a 100-year flood event. Um, that's a little bit outdated language, and that's what concerns environmentalists that we've been using this kind of metric for measuring how flood-prone an area is. That is no longer the case with how frequently areas in Florida and Jacksonville flood now. So what does Corner Lot want to do with this property? Uh, they they want to make it into multi-use um, family housing. I believe they want to put in some uh, shopping and other commercial district kind of things in there. Uh, but overall, the plans aren't solidified yet. Still in flux. Uh, 5492937. Environmentalists have really cried foul about this, Hannah. They've said it's a horrible development from an environmental standpoint. Uh, They are shoehorning in a property when it should be a prime candidate for Florida forever protection. Uh, That's, of course, the program that tries to protect lands in the state from development. So what is the city council saying about this? 
So we're, we did not see that much discussion in city council, either in committee or in full council meetings about this development, but that's not particularly abnormal. Normally, city council gets a lot of their information outside of committee meetings from the planning department, from their office of general counsel. And so then whenever they come in, there's not a lot of questions. They might have some for the developer, but we didn't see that much community uproar like we did with the Pumpkin Hill Creek development, obviously, because there's not a lot of people in that area. So what I learned from council member Rory Diamond was kind of his thought process from it. And obviously in Jacksonville, like you said, we have apartments coming up online everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And that's because we don't have enough housing. So from council member Diamond's perspective, it was about the housing possibilities and trying to kind of alleviate that concern. Now, as you both report in the TU, these recent developments in the city's northwest quadrant have faced community and environmental uproar, I'm quoting you, sparking a renewed debate over the benefits of providing new housing versus the drawbacks of developing rural land. Can you talk about the recent uproar that we saw over another development adjacent to the sensitive Pumpkin Hill Preserve? That was approved, I believe, in a 10 to 9 vote on the city council over the vehement objections of a lot of voters that live in the area and really vocally uh, schooled the city council on why this was a bad idea. And they voted it in anyway. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. So. Obviously, I don't think the average Jacksonville resident watches every city council meeting, right? But I think a lot of people heard about that upset. And what it was is the people who live near Pumpkin Hill, the reserve, were very angry about the possibility of development coming their way. And in the first city council meeting back in January, where they were supposed to be voting on the rezoning bill, They came out in mass. I mean, I was watching it, and I think the public comment on that particular set of bills took two hours, which is very uncommon. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't want this land so close to them to be developed. They were concerned about increased traffic. They were concerned about um, the environmental aspects of it, kind of like what's happening with this development here that we're talking about off Acre Road. And what ultimately ended up happening was they postponed the vote, which is abnormal, and they tried to reach a compromise, and a compromise was not met, and city council did approve it anyway. This is typical, honestly, for the Jacksonville City Council. Uh, Critics for many years have said they never met a developer they didn't like or a project they didn't like. I mean, that's really been the story of Florida overall. Uh, Its economy rests on traditionally tourism, agriculture, and development. There's always this push and pull between people that want to develop and people that argue if if we don't protect some of these lands, Florida will lose its natural beauty and our tourism will fall off. And is, is that argument landing at all with some of these representatives or not? I think that it does. I think that you're right. Critics have said city council will approve developments. They will. Jacksonville land is very popular. It's very, um, It's worth a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that for these particular developments, it was mostly about the residents, the the members of council that voted no. I don't necessarily think it was about the environmental standpoint. It might have made a little bit, but I think it was mostly about the residents who showed out. And so I think that it does take a lot of local input to make a change to these developments. Yeah, uh, I I remember this is a little off topic, but some years ago, people in St. Nicholas successfully kept Walmart out of their neighborhood. And that was the ultimate David versus Goliath battle. They kept Walmart out. But sure enough, that parcel did get developed anyway, and, and it's now an apartment complex. But let's go to your calls. Five, four, nine, two, nine, three, seven. Tony in Jack's Beach. Good morning, Tony. What are your thoughts? Hey, good morning, Melissa. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, Obviously, from an environmental standpoint, this is an egregious sin against Florida. Um, But also from a consumer standpoint, these apartments are going up all over town, and we've got no idea if these are like 
you know, quick and dirty bills that are just getting done to accommodate the population increase that we're having here. And the prices are astronomical. I mean, are these units even going to be affordable for local residents or is this just going to contribute to more gentrification of Jacksonville as a whole? Those are all great points. Thanks for that, Alexandria Mansfield. I know you're more focused on the environmental issues, but this is an important thing to talk about, too. These units are going up really fast, really aggressively. They're all over the place, and they are increasingly unaffordable for a lot of people in town. That's part of the story, too. Yeah, absolutely. And Hannah and I have both worked a lot to cover um, affordable housing in Jacksonville and where we've seen improvements and where we're seeing delays and uh, basically where uh, nonprofits think more effort could be made. This area, Mm -hmm. we really don't know what's going to go there because Corner Lot hasn't finalized their plans. Um, Corner Lot is a pretty well-known developer here, though. They've put up apartments downtown um, and in the surrounding downtown areas, mostly, and all of those apartments are listed as luxury apartments. I I don't know how exactly they define luxury, but uh, you can assume that it's not necessarily going to be focused on that more affordable housing for people at a lower income. Five four nine two nine three seven. Curtis on the north side. How are you, Curtis? Good to see you in the queue. Good morning, my sister and ladies. Um, my comment is this, Melissa. Uh, that's what happens when we don't consider who we are elected. When we allow land developers and people who are vested in development become our senators and our um, city council members and mayors and governors. Thank you. Thank you. You know, there is an election coming up. And city council candidates are on the ballot. Hannah, well, this is one of many questions people can ask these candidates, where they stand on these kinds of issues. Absolutely. And I do think it's worth mentioning, you know, city council finished up their special committee on critical quality of life issues. And so for people who are really invested in affordable housing, you can ask your candidates, have you read this report? Do you like any of the suggestions, any of the recommendations that were made? Not even because they're up right now or Mm -hmm. because the report, you know, they should read directly off of it line for line, but because there's a lot of suggestions in there Mm -hmm. and what your candidates could support could really start to impact your area. Five, four, nine, two, nine, three, seven. Mark on the west side. Mark, what's up? Good morning. You know, I was thinking while I was sitting here on the phone, you know, I hear I hear stories like this all the time. And you've got to shake your head every time that uh, some business or some development wants to get city subsidies or, or, or tax money or incentives to do anything in Jacksonville, Florida. It's like uh, it doesn't even begin to make sense to me. But my question was, has there been any talk about schools with that many houses? I'm pretty sure we're going to have to have some more school infrastructure or build new schools or Add to the existing ones. I don't even know what the schools are out there, but uh, sometimes the developer makes a little deal that they're going to set aside property for some schools. Is any talk of that? Thanks for that. How rural is this area, Alexandria, and how much infrastructure does it need, including a school? Uh, so it's a very rural area. I don't know if there's actually anyone living out there right now. There might be a couple um, small, you know small families with a couple acres or something like that. But right now it's mostly just land. Um, and I believe it's a one way, like, you know, a, a two, two car, two lane. Uh, oh, very road. rural. Yes. <laughs> well, theoretically, developers are supposed to uh, kick in to improve infrastructure in areas where they build. Of course, that it doesn't always work out that way. And that's a problem, too. Hannah. Yes, and they are zoned to put in that type of infrastructure. And so I think it's important to remember the difference between what it's zoned for and what will end up going out there. So it's zoned for up to 3,000 units of housing, but that doesn't mean that that's how many will go. It's also zoned for commercial uses that range from stores to bowling alleys to so many different Mm -hmm. options. And so we're really kind of at a standing point where Corner Lot doesn't have their permit yet from the St. John's Water Management District. And so it's really going to depend on what environmentalist groups like that say that can go out. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Sierra Club, other groups say that this land should be preserved under Florida Forever. That's Florida's premier conservation and recreation lands acquisition program. Uh, The North Florida Land Trust does some of that same kind of work in this area, buying up parcels so that they cannot be developed on in order to preserve ecosystems. 
preserve endangered species and such. Here is a comment on Facebook from Joss. I'm on the side of the environmentalists. Almost no one talks about conservation anymore. I understand the need for housing, but I really don't want another valuable green space raised so a developer can make money. Tom on Facebook, how does a development on the extreme edge of the county ease the housing shortage in Jacksonville? Luxury apartments or pricey apartments? That's a, I think that's a valid question. Why is it going so far out? Um, so basically, there are two ways that we can tackle housing issues in Jacksonville. One of them is developing rural areas or urban sprawl. And the other is infill, which is developing areas that are um, basically blank canvases here in Jacksonville. They're, you know, abandoned churches, warehouses, uh, things like that, where either the building can be, um, you know, renovated to make housing or the block can completely be raised and then new housing can go up there. So with the demand for housing the way it is in Jacksonville, I believe city council is trying to do both right now because um, the, our demands are just so high. Obviously, environmentalists think you should, you know, leave the land outside of Jacksonville alone or, you know, at the edge of Jacksonville alone and focus on the infill. Um, but both are ways that you can combat the housing crisis. And it is real. I mean, the need for more housing is real. That's the other side of it, obviously. Absolutely. It really is, you know, a catch-22 because on one hand, you can't just not provide any more housing, right? But on the other hand, Florida is known for its nature, and we need to preserve that not only for tourism and recreation, but because it's important, right? And so whenever you're looking at what what developments to approve, it is a bar about what a source in the article said about being smart about it and being really strategic about where you put these developments. And so focusing on infill development, creating very dense urban areas, we've also seen some people being upset about that because people really like to have single-family homes. So it is going to be a push-and-pull scenario. Jen tweets the show, there is environmental impact with this development. You see a major influx of trash, which makes its way into the river and the beaches. Okay, 5492937. Susie on the south side. Good morning, Susie. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for having me. I wanted to have a suggestion that maybe the commissioners could go out on site to some of these properties and see what it's like before they vote. Because with the Pumpkin Creek Hill area project, if they could get out to that Cedar Point Road area and go to the bridge that crosses Pumpkin Hill Creek, that area is so beautiful. The creek is flowing. There's oaks and pines and wildlife and the Seven Creeks area. Because that area is so important for wildlife. And if they take out, when they take out that little area of Pumpkin Creek Hill and develop it, those species that are dependent on fire and prescribed fire are not going to be there anymore because they're now taking out the area they can put the smoke because now there's going to be 95 houses. And that area depends, um, the biodiversity depends on fire. They're now taking that out. So if they could have a tour from the managers of the state park, the national park, the historical park of Timaquan that they've now taken out, they would know more. And the other thing is, is if you go out there and drive Cedar Point Road and see how the developers clear cut everything, put fill over everything in what was a natural area, I think they would see that these are precious areas that need to be preserved. So thank you for taking my comment. Thank you. Susan uh, tweets the show, my city council member says he voted yes on the development next to Pumpkin Hill because he said it would have very little impact on the surrounding area. Alexandria, what about the caller's idea that before they take a vote like this, they actually go look at it and see what kind of impact it might have for their own with their own eyes? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, I think another idea that a lot of environmentalists would like to see happen, but that maybe we as a city don't have the funding for is to hire an independent environmental, um, you know, surveyor to go out to these properties and do an independent study on them. Right now, what usually happens is the developer hires a surveyor to, um, you know, document the endangered species, say what the impact will be, that sort of thing, and then gives that report to the city council. Uh, And obviously that person you know, is on the side of the developer. They're employed by them. Uh, So maybe city council employing somebody like that, like the chief resiliency officer or something like that, could be helpful to um, 
these areas. And Judy emails the show, housing developments near wetlands that have negative environmental impacts result in increased property insurance rates for everyone. Is that a piece of the puzzle, too? I think that property insurance rates are at the concern for every uh, homeowner in Florida right now. And so I think that that concern is very valid because if you take away the lands that are meant to help with flood mitigation, then we are put more at risk. Let's take a few more of your calls. 549-2937. Tom at NAS Jacks. Hey, Tom. Good morning to you. Good morning, Melissa. Uh, my comment uh, also has a, a small question, and that is about prioritizing one of your panel people have, were talking about infill. And we certainly have plenty of property in Jacksonville up along 995. You've got the Gateway Shopping Center, where if that was wiped out and redeveloped into something good, uh, or, you know, actually it is good now, I'm sure, but it was redeveloped into affordable housing and, and retail space or even just housing and retail space. All the infrastructure is there, the roads, the traffic lights, the water, the sewer, the electric, the schools, the libraries, the medical centers and hospitals. You've got so many empty or darn near empty shopping centers up and down Blanding Boulevard. Blanding at Wilson, for example, comes right to mind. These are places that can just be bowled over quite easily and redeveloped into something that actual ordinary normal people can use with the lowest impact to the environment. Mm. I want to know why that's not being prioritized by our city council. Mm. Thank you, Tom. Alexandria Mayfield. I also want to know why that's not being prioritized (laughs) by our city council. Um, I do know that a lot of people are focused on that. The city council does have that in its plans. And uh, most of the mayoral candidates have also said that they want to focus on infill if they were to be elected. So it's definitely on people's minds. I think just putting it into practice might be a little more difficult than maybe we've anticipated or we understand. Mm. Okay. So what else, before we, uh, there's a few more calls coming. I'll try to get a few more in Hannah Holdhouse. What else should people know about where this stands? I think that it's important to know that the developer, Corner Lot, whenever I talked to their marketing director, he did say that he hadn't heard any of these concerns. And so he said to me to, you know, tell the people, tell the uh, anyone who's concerned that they're open to a dialogue. So whether or not that's put into practice, if people do have concerns, if people live near the area, maybe it's worth extending a hand just to see what's picked up and if there is a line of communication there. Because I think what we saw with the Pumpkin Creek development is that a compromise was tried to be reached. What was the compromise? The compromise, there was a lot of back and forth for anyone who did read about it. The So Council Member Al Ferraro kind of took it upon himself at the first meeting where there was a lot of back and forth to say, let's put this on hold. Let's talk to the developer, talk to the developer's attorney, Paul Hardin, and then talk to the people in the area. And the people in the area came back to city council and said, we didn't see this compromise that was supposed to be put forth tonight. And so without having seen it, we don't want it. We would rather just have them completely nix the rezoning. And because they did, because there was no compromise reached, because they did not take this plan that they had never seen prior to the meeting, it passed. And of course, lobbyist Paul Harden, uh, he's long been called the unofficial 20th city council member. A lot of these controversial developments that get approved have his hand yes. in them. Yes, he's very well known. He... Um, There was even a profile written about him in the Florida Times Union in 2010 for his style because he has a lot of connections. He knows how to lobby, right? That's his whole job. And so that's not uncommon, right? People, developers will hire a lawyer to help navigate them through the city council process. But Paul Harden is especially well known. And this development, the Pumpkin Creek development, was actually put up in front of city council two years ago and they rejected it. And then it was bought again, and Paul Harden was hired as the applicant, and here we are. Susan in St. Augustine. Go ahead, Susan. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm looking at the NOAA website, and I'm reading that uh, current studies suggest that mangroves and coastal wetlands annually sequester carbon at a rate 10 times greater than mature tropical forests. So we need to protect wetlands for climate change. Uh, abs- that's absolutely right, and I do appreciate you pointing that out. That 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 is 
really uh, going to be increasingly important in this state in particular. Uh, let's get one more call. Elizabeth along the St. John's River. Are you there? Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Yes. Hey, uh, I wanted to just say that a few years ago, St. John's River was totally horrible. And we live out here at Fitzpatrick's Creek and Boggy Creek, Boggy Creek, and we have wetlands that, that have the grass that cleans the water. Literally, we have a nursery for the fish. We have something that is environmentally fragile, and it is a fragile magic to keep it that way because there's no other place around that has not only the beauty, but the, the, the thriving for nature and the cleaning of the St. John's. And the I just, I get very emotional when I speak of it because I'm old enough to have seen what the St. John's River had to be cleaned, how it had to be cleaned up, how it had to be made beautiful again. That's my comment. Well, Elizabeth, thank you. And I'm glad you get to enjoy it and live along the water like that. So more in the Times Union about this, right? Yeah, absolutely. We'll be following this story until its end. Thank you both. Thank you. Hannah Holthouse and Alexandria Mansfield, both with the Florida Times Union. Read more about it there. Much more still ahead. Later in the hour, you can learn more about Jacksonville's Black Heritage this Black History Month with Explore. Jack's Core will tell you how you can hop on and take a tour. But up next, there are threats to your home you may not know about. Jacksonville Area Legal Aid is here to help. We'll speak with them after this. Welcome back. Well, having clear title to your home is often crucial to saving it, whether the threat is from foreclosure or a natural, natural disaster. Jacksonville Area Legal Aid is helping families avoid foreclosures and access federal aid. And there's an, a deadline coming up they want you to know about, too. Carol Miller is an attorney for community economic development with Jacksonville Area Legal Aid, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Nessa. It's good to see you. Glad to be here. So we need to give a heads up to a lot of people out there about a deadline that's coming up when it comes to their homes. Can you tell us about it? Yes. If you have acquired property or had someone in your family die that was a homeowner, you need to notify the property appraiser by March 1st and hopefully apply for your own homestead exemption if you're living in the property. Okay. And... Uh, what happens after March 1st? Do you lose the homestead exemption opportunity? Yes, you, you do, except there are a few exceptions. If you are an heir and this was the person's homestead, you can certainly uh, do your probate case. And once the judges transfer the property to you, you still can still apply if you do this before the property appraiser closes the tax rolls. Okay. So this is important for people to understand. If they don't have clear title, they can't negotiate with lenders, they can't access federal aid, including disaster relief from FEMA, or get housing assistance through HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Um, there are all sorts of issues that can come up, right? Absolutely. Uh, and the worst part is that many, many people are not aware that these issues exist. They're floating along uh, thinking that everything is fine, although, of course, they're grieving because the homeowner has died, but 
they don't realize that they also have a legal situation that they need to handle. Mm -hmm. And until someone gives them the heads up, and I give credit to Jerry Holland's property appraisers office because they started comparing uh, the death rolls with their property rolls and sending out letters in 2016 to let homeowners know that they are losing their homestead exemption. Mm -hmm. Before that, many people didn't become aware of it until something happened, like they missed a payment on the mortgage and the loan servicer told them. And unfortunately, if you're not the property owner, the the loan company won't even talk to you. Wow. So this is an easy way for a family to lose generational wealth, which is typically passed down through home ownership. Yes, right? they absolutely can face big tax liens because there is a penalty for receiving the homestead exemption when you weren't entitled. And the sad part is they probably were entitled to their own exemption, but they have to become the legal owner. Okay, so there are so many ways that families get this unwelcome news uh, and then they don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do. That's where you come in at Jacksonville Area Legal Aid. Tell yes. us about your services. Well, we asked the property appraiser if he would send out a flyer with his letter, letting people call legal aid. Mm -hmm. And so I gave my direct line so that they would talk to me. And that way uh, they didn't get lost in our system and they were able to find out what was going on. The letter, the probate is pretty confusing and the letter, a lot of people don't understand it, and sometimes they'd actually go down to the property appraiser's office, and the staff would tell them, you need to call legal aid, and then they would call. So it's not common knowledge, and we would like all your listeners, if they know someone who has died, and they know that the family might not have taken care of the probate or been aware of it, it would be great if they would just check with them and make sure that they are aware that this has happened. And you help families with legal representation, advice, helping them navigate the probate process. You help with mortgage modifications. Now, uh, of course, let's give a shout out to the work of Jacksonville Area Legal Aid going all the way back to the housing crisis of 2008, 2009, when uh, people were being foreclosed on left and right your office developed a brilliant legal strategy to stop that and keep people in their homes. These mortgages had been repackaged and sold over and over again. And wasn't it you and others in your office who demanded that these mortgagers show the original note in court before they could kick someone out of their home? Didn't you come up with that? Yes. Our executive director, James Kowalski, is one of the leading attorneys on foreclosure in the country. And we have a fabulous consumer unit with Lynn Drysdale, Mike Palkowski, and Adam Thorison. Mm -hmm. They're all excellent at, at helping with loan foreclosures. Mm -hmm. And often a part of that is the probate work because sometimes the, the family owner, the original homeowners died and they now we're dealing with the heirs. Well, yeah. folks, if uh, you need help with this kind of matter, get in touch with Carol at Jacksonville Area Legal Aid before March 1st. JacksLegalAid.org is the website, JacksLegalAid.org, or call them at 356-8371. Carol Miller, Community Development Attorney with Jacksonville Area Legal Aid. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, it's Black History Month, and here's something cool. You can learn more about the city's rich black heritage by taking a tour through the urban core. 
on a fun six-person low-speed electric vehicle. Yolanda Copeland is founder and CEO of Explore Jack's Core, and they conduct historic black heritage tours and a lot more. And she joins us now. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Melissa. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. Yes, it is. And I'm so pleased to see the growth of Explore Jack's Core. You use these open uh, electric powered Mm -hmm. small person vehicles, like a almost like a tuck-in. Correct. And you take people on tours through the urban core neighborhoods and they learn so much. Yeah. And so, you know, these, uh, just to talk about the tour itself. And so I do, I conduct um, historical tours with an emphasis on black history. Mm -hmm. And when I moved here in 2013, I wasn't seeing it, as, you know, as I explored Jack's Court and I learned so much about the history that was here. I couldn't find anyone. I couldn't find anyone that was doing that the was doing it. So you yeah. found a niche, you found a gap in the market and filled it. I found a gap in the market and I filled it because I love history. And uh, although I am local to new, pretty new to the area, I've been coming here for over 30 years and my family's been here for well over 100. Wow. Yeah. So if. Someone is just now hearing about this mm-hmm. and they book a tour at Explore Jack's Core. What are they going to learn about Jacksonville's black heritage? When you book a tour with Explore Jack's Core, you're going to get an educational and dynamic tour. And uh, I like to point out the fact that I use these electric vehicles and they're safest in class. Mm-hmm. It's a golf car style. But when you take one of my tours, you're going to learn about the black history and heritage. We're going to stop by the oldest his, and most historic black Baptist Church and Baptist Church in the state of Florida, the first school, public school for blacks in the, in the city of Jacksonville, the first hospital. Jacksonville has the first millionaires. It has the first, a lot of the first of first. We're also going to delve into the cultural and uh, the uh, the the cultural and the dynamic of those artists and those poets mm-hmm. and those artisans uh, in the La Villa area, the Harlem of the South, as, as it's better known as more here locally. Yeah, there is so much incredible rich history mm-hmm. that people just don't know about. They just don't know about. And it. unfortunately, there are, there are attempts to erase that history. Mm-hmm. So I think a business like yours becomes all the more important because you're really going to have fun and you're going to learn a lot. Yeah, you're going to learn a lot. And, you know, we, I dive into that also uh, because I couldn't help as I was trying to find that the black neighborhood, I found all this other redlining, their effects of redlining, their effects of the expressway. I, 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 and, you know, I'm very honest on my tours, and this is some of the things that you're going to see. Mm-hmm. And it's quite devastating, you know, and I have to regroup. And people, they appreciate it. They appreciate all the, all the information that they learn on the tour that they never knew before. It's a, a lot of people know it, but there's tons more that are totally unaware that Jacksonville really is a historic, it should be historic Jacksonville and we're on par or could be on par and I'm not I'm not stretching it with St. Augustine Savannah and Charleston we've been around you know longer yeah or just as long if it weren't for the great fire of 1901 we'd have a much more developed historic downtown and unfortunately that's not the case but there are still so many historic buildings that you take people through on the tour. Uh, Mm -hmm. Does the tour route go through La Villa, downtown, Springfield? Where does it go? Well, that's why I also started this is because the black history is in historically black neighborhoods and no one was going into these historically black neighborhoods. So we're talking part of the downtown, Hanson Town. We're going through Sugar Hill, Mm -hmm. Durkeeville. It's about a 10 mile stretch, Newtown occasionally Mm -hmm. and back through La Villa. So it's, it becomes a 10 mile loop and it takes the tours about two hours. Mm-hmm. Two hours long, and you can book a tour at explorejacksquare.com. You drive the vehicle, mm-hmm, and do. you t- you you're the tour guide. I am. You're working really hard. How many tours are you doing every week? I do about two tours a week. To be quite honest, I wish it was more, and it's seasonal depending on what's going on in Jacksonville. And the bulk of my passengers, my riders, are they're they're tourists. They're visitors. Oh, interesting. And so I would love for, uh, you know, more folks that are here in Jacksonville. I do have some support uh, locally, but the vast 90 percent come from outside. Isn't that fascinating? Mm-hmm. So yeah. y- come on, Duval. <laughs> you come need to Duval. do this. Don't don't leave all of this Duval. fun to the tourists. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fun. You know, it's fun. It's safe. 
uh, you know, I, I just could go on and on about it really should be a four hour tour. There's so much history here. And mm-hmm. also when I do the tour, I focus on the St. John's River and I talk about its relationship to that period where uh, St. Augustine, when Florida was a Spanish territory mm-hmm. and downtown Jacksonville itself. So I cannot not uh, talk about Jacksonville's history. And what I'm trying to do is mesh and merge black history so that people could really see that black history is American history. Now, you are the first to bring this golf car style electric vehicle to the city's urban landscape. Yes. This is Mm eco-friendly. And then going beyond Black History Month, you do all kinds of fun stuff for people. They can do special event shuttles for weddings, Mm -hmm. pub crawls. Yeah. You can tailor it any way people want. Yes. Corporate team building. You know, weddings, parties, if you just want to throw a birthday party for your significant other or just your friends want to go out and hang out. So I've got two vehicles. So I have capacity of 10 uh, people at one time. And, uh, you know, I'm here. I'm here for it all. You're the only black woman owned company like this, too, anywhere in the region, I believe. Yes. So you're you're blazing that trail as well. Blazing that trail. What's been the most challenging thing about it as a business owner? Because starting a business is tough. Uh, quite honestly, I think you all mentioned it on your last segment, insurance mm. in state of Florida is a beast. Mm. And that is my biggest obstacle. And uh, Insuring the vehicles. Insuring the vehicles because, and I also deal with, uh, you know, it's an unlevel playing field at times because I am insured, I am licensed, and I am in business the right way. And so, but I can't do anything about that. I have to get my local politicians to kind of settle that score. I see. Well, in the meantime, this is something that I think uh, even people that have lived there their whole lives Mm -hmm. and they think they know all the local history, I promise you, you don't. And if you were to go on this tour with Yolanda, you're going to be amazed at what you learn. I want people to call me Yoli, first of all. Yoli. Yeah, call me Yoli. But I also like to to piggyback on what you just said about I've had older citizens like 60 and above. They come on board and there are things that they just have not known. There's also things that they remember about the way the neighborhoods used to be Sugar Hill, A Street, how it was Millionaire's Row for black for for black mm-hmm. Americans mm-hmm. in the in the uh, in the city of Jacksonville. And also they impart their their knowledge onto me about things that that happened, you know, to them when they were younger. Wow. Good things and sometimes not so good. But you can add that into the tour, I guess. And too. I do. Yeah. Well, check it out. It's explorejackscore.com, explorejackscore.com, or call Yoli up at 510-5995 and explore the Urban Core's rich black heritage. So good to see you, and Thank thanks you. for stopping by. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Yes, and you're very active there, too. Yeah, I'm very active. Yes, and always you. good to see you yes, on yes. that as well, especially Instagram and, and others. And a quick break, but in a moment, Josh Torres on the outcome of the great American race. Don't go away.
Before he was Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky was a comedic actor and entertainment mogul. Now he's a global symbol of democracy. People really recognize themselves in him, identify themselves with him, or he identifies himself with the people. How Ukraine's president transformed himself in the midst of a major war. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. This afternoon at 4, here on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Carol Hills. Russia rolled across the borders of Ukraine one year ago this week. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. Consequences that have played out on Ukraine's battlefields and in nations around the globe. Our team in Kyiv examines the war one year on. Join us on The World. Tomorrow at 3 on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Jane Clayson. As we approach one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we take a look at President Vladimir Putin's power inside his own country. Reports suggest some elite circles inside the Kremlin are unhappy with the direction of the war, and Putin is becoming increasingly isolated. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at 2 on WJCT News 89.9. It can make decisions that aren't just as good as the ones we make, but sometimes better. But where is AI taking us next? AI is on track to become as mainstream as electricity or computing. We kick off a new series that looks at the challenges ahead for us, for artificial intelligence, and for a world where machines know it all. That's next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. Well, drivers fired up their engines and went racing at the great American race, the Daytona 500. And as always, an exciting race and an exciting finish. Here with that and more sports notes, our own Josh Torres, a big racing fan himself. So how was the big race? Melissa, it's always a fantastic race to watch. And one thing I really try to express to people, you don't realize really until you watch it how difficult this race is to win. You know, one of the most famous figures in the sport is Dale Earnhardt. And for as much as he's know, he's known about, it took him 20 years in the top level of NASCAR before he finally won his first Daytona 500. Think about all the championships he's won during that time period. It still took him 20 years just to win this one race. And when he won it, everybody came out of the garages to congratulate him because of how long it took him. So this is not an easy race to win. Mm -hmm. And even the favorites are never the ones who tend not to be the ones who end up winning. But it, like you said, it was a fantastic race to watch a lot of exciting action. And one thing I really loved was there wasn't as much of the crashes that you always hear about the big one, the one where it just takes out half the field and then it's, it's down to the last few guys. It was actually a very clean race, a lot of really great passing, some of the most passing I've ever seen in this race, and it came down to overtime. I know it might sound weird, but NASCAR, they do have overtime where mm. if a caution comes out and it takes past what the designated laps are, so in this case it was 200 laps, um, and then they go into overtime, which is a two-lap shootout. And the thing about their overtime rules is if during that first lap after the green flag is waved during the, for the start overtime, if there's another caution, well, then overtime just restarts. And mm -hmm. so it took them two overtimes before they finally got the winner, which was Ricky Stenhouse Jr., a 13-year veteran of NASCAR, won his first ever Daytona 500. And it was great to see. And, you know, it, it is an exciting race. And I always tell people to watch, give it a watch. You know, a lot of people you see hear about NASCAR, oh, they're just a bunch of guys turning left. It really is a big strategy battle. You got to time your pit stops correctly. You got to work with guys around you if you want to make it to the front. I mean, Ricky Stenhouse was not a guy who was favored to win this race. He really mm -hmm. didn't lead a whole lot until the final stages. And that's what can sometimes just get you the win is you got to be leading at the right time and mm -hmm. it was still an exciting race and a lot of fun to watch timing is everything so he takes the checkered flag uh congrats to him all right let's talk about college sports for a minute florida has enacted new legislation that is aimed at making it more competitive in the college sports world what's this all about yeah so uh, you know a few years ago ncaa finally has allowed college athletes to make money off of their likeness. Name, image, and likeness. NIL. That's a term you're gonna you hear a lot nowadays. And Florida originally when they when they 
enacted their part of the legislation, they did not allow schools in the state to help athletes find these uh, these NIL deals. And now this new legislation is aimed at helping, allowing universities to set up these deals for athletes. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, they may not quite say it, but a lot of this, I think, really came after uh, the high-profile recruitment of uh, J- Jaden Rashada, who originally committed to Florida, had a huge NIL deal that I believe was worth like $3 million set up with the Gator Collective, which was a collective that was that was not directly affiliated with the school, but was more of boosters and donors who were helping the athletes get NIL deals and that deal fell through and now he is he decommitted and he's committed to Arizona State instead and on top of that mm. they just want to make Florida much more competitive in the in the in the college sports world because it is a huge huge industry which is why athletes for so long fought to get these get NIL sponsorships and be able to allow that to happen because as soon as that happened now some of these guys are making millions of dollars in college and for a lot of them, that's the first time they've ever seen any kind of money like that. And so it is right. a huge thing. And so this is going to make Florida way more competitive in the college sports world. Interesting. Now, speaking of college sports, last but not least, as the college basketball season comes to an end, a rather ugly finish in a game between UNF and Austin P. What happened? Yeah, so this, you know, a lot of these teams are finishing out their conference schedules, which you play each team in your conference twice. And so they've... UNF has already played Austin P once. They beat him at UNF. And this weekend they were playing them, this time at Austin P State. And towards the end of the game, Austin P was was leading, but UNF had a chance to tie or even possibly win the game. And basically an inbound play happened. One of UNF's players got kind of maybe took a shot to the face. They a loose ball ensued. Austin P was able to recover the ball. And rather than running the clock out or just getting an easy point, one of their players decided he was going to show off and attempt to basically smack the ball down and slam it home. One of UNS players decided, no, you're not, came in, hard fouled him, a scrum ensued, and then once it was all broken up, eventually the game ended, and then another scrum appears to have resumed in mm. the locker towards the locker rooms because the hallway to both locker rooms is shared, so both teams have to go in there. All that we saw from the broadcast was UNF players rushing to that hallway, clearly showing that another melee had had started. And so it's unfortunate this is going to happen. It involved Jonathan Abar of UNF, who's a very big needed player. But unfortunately, it looks like the ASUN has not announced any punishments yet, only saying they're investigating. UNF has released a statement saying they are saddened that this is how this contest had to end, but that they were going to cooperate with the uh, ASUM with however they needed to. And so, unfortunately, I do expect a lot of suspensions coming out between Austin P and pa- and UNF. Jonathan Abar probably will be serving some type of suspension coming up. That's unfortunate. Well, always good to get your sports updates. Josh Torres, thank you. Thank you, Melissa. And thanks to our team, David Luckin, Heather Schatz, Brendan Rivers, Isabella De Silva, Michelle Corum, and Bridget O'Brien. Drop us a line anytime at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. I'm Melissa Ross. Happy President's Day. Make it a great one. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.